Hello, and welcome to another episode of Work Beyond Mac. I'm your host, Jason Cipriani. On today's show, I talk with muralist and artist FDOT about his iPad setup and workflow that uses a mix of paper and iPad to create anything from special edition baseball trading cards to murals that he's painted all over the world. We also get sidetracked for a few minutes talking about NFTs and what they mean for artists going forward. It's a fun chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before I welcome today's guest, I just want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, Kensington. If you've never checked out any of their Apple accessories, including docks, rugged cases, locks, and privacy screens, please be sure to do that at kensington.com. I also want to take a moment to thank you for downloading and listening to Work Beyond Mac. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a rating or a review. It truly helps. And now, let's dive in. All right, Eric, welcome to the show, and, and thanks for joining me. Um, I, I truly, truly appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So I guess let's take a few seconds and have you introduce yourself to the listeners. Tell us who you are, what you're all about. Sure. So my name is Eric Friedensen. Most people know me as FDOT. I'm an artist, illustrator, and muralist based in Brooklyn. Um, I have a few different main projects that I focus on. One of them is just painting murals around Brooklyn, around, around the country, around the world. Um, in addition to that, I, I run an Instagram account called Muralists, where I teach the process of how to paint murals and curate other artists in the space. Uh, also very heavy into the trading card world these days. I've been collaborating with Tops. Uh, that is what I've been working on lately, uh, but I'm an artist of all sorts. I love dipping my pen in a bunch of different buckets of ink and getting messy, doing analog digital work. Um, formally trained as a graphic designer, but I've been leaning more into the artist side of my creative pursuits in the recent years. Awesome. I, I was actually checking out your website uh, in preparation for the show, and I found myself lost in all the videos and different things you have posted between YouTube and everything else. And one of the main video you have on your, your site gives a little detail and a backstory into how you found yourself doing murals and the optimist, uh, I guess what slogan brand, whatever it is, uh, that came to be for you. So I think it's interesting to give some perspective to the listeners about, you know, the journey you went through to get to this point. Uh, do you mind sharing that story with us? Sure. Yeah. The, the journey has been a, a big roller coaster. I don't know if every artist has such an emotional, uh, up and down kind of, journey, but that's been, that's the way it's been for me. Every year has been different from the last. And what really sparked this direction for my work, leaning into creating art for optimists, which is what I, I've been using that phrase to describe my work to people, art for optimists. That The genesis of that story was in 2014. I was living in Manhattan. I had been freelancing out, out of school for a couple of years. I kind of felt like I was living the dream, even though most of my jobs were still coming from Craigslist or some random <laughs> website. Um, yeah. I was living a, a cheapened, watered-down version of my dream, and that felt really good uh, for the first time to be to be freelancing and and actually paying paying my bills from that. Uh, and it wasn't just doing graphic design work because uh, at the time I, I was being pushed into you know make websites, make apps, do you know do all these different types of projects that are in demand. And I did I didn't really want to have to do that. I liked creating images, creating drawings. At the time, it was hand lettering was my obsession. And so I would spend all this time in, in my apartment drawing, uh, refining my lettering work. And one day I was, I was painting a sign for my friend's tattoo shop. And I had woken up early to finish the sign for him. It was around 9 a.m. and I'm, I'm working on it. And all of a sudden, I smelled something out, out of the ordinary and, and it just felt wrong. It was just a weird feeling I had about that moment on a, yeah. a random Friday morning in, in August. And uh, I was like, you know what? It smells kind of weird. There's like a, a sulfur smoky smell, but it's New York City. So, you know, who cares? It's just a New York City <laughs> right. smell, right? It, who knows yeah. what's outside? And I'm on the second floor apartment, so I can still hear people outside. I was on 2nd Avenue and 35th Street. So pretty busy area. Um, right. And then, I, so I closed my windows and then I started smelling it again. And uh, eventually it got so strong that I was like, what is that smell? And I look out the window and I look down into the backyard and the entire backyard, like the little enclosed courtyard uh, is on fire. Oh man! And, and I had no idea how it started. I still don't know how it started to this day, 
but all I knew is that it was growing fast and I just needed to get out of there uh, before it came in through my windows because it was that big of a fire on the, and I was on the second floor. So you can kind of imagine like the, the state of panic that I'm in right now and just trying to figure out what I need to grab before I leave. And I didn't, I ended up just kind of running out the front door because I knew it was a clear exit. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had time to, to search around the apartment and gather a lot of valuables Sure. mainly because the, the windows were essentially like shattering one by one at this point. It happened within, within, within seconds. And I'm really lucky I didn't get cut with the glass or anything. Uh, just really minor. I, I did close the window and burn my hands on the window. Um, so that's the play by play of how that, how that fire went down. But throughout the day, like I didn't get to go back into my apartment until late that night. And, uh, the, the building didn't collapse luckily, but everything in my apartment was taken with the fire and it just, it spread from one thing to the next, to the next. And that picture in my head still haunts me to this day. Um, I'm just, I'm just glad that I woke up and got out of there. Um, but really what happened after this was I, I had a, had a blank slate. It was an interesting uh, challenge to see like what was important to me and what wasn't important to me at, at that moment. Uh, after losing all my physical possessions, I was still very grateful to be healthy and alive and well. And luckily no one else got injured in the incident. Um, but one thing I did find when I was digging through the remains of the apartment was my scanner. And this is the scanner that I used to, for all my lettering pieces that I was telling you about. And I yeah. opened up the scanner, even though it was like melted <laughs> and mangled, um, it was just beneath some, some debris. Uh, and I opened the scanner and I found this drawing and on the piece of paper, it said optimist. Man, what, what a, what a message, huh? After going through all of that to, to open that up and find it. Yeah, that was definitely a, a, a turning point for me. It, it didn't really feel like a big deal until maybe a few minutes afterwards. I, I saw, I was like, Oh wow, that that's like a sign. <laughs> that's a sign from my past yeah. self to, to get through this and, and to know that I'm strong and know that I can keep my head up through difficult things like this. And, um, it was the sign that I needed and it really inspired me to go that direction with my work, just sharing my story personally of what happened in that day and how I got through that time in my life. Um, and also just sharing the word, sharing the message. So what I did was I, I ended up refining that sketch turning it into a postcard that I got really nicely printed with a letterpress machine. A friend of mine works at a letterpress printer and hooked me up. And uh, awesome. so, so we sent out these postcards just to thank everybody who helped me after the fire. Cause we did receive some donations to a, uh, a GoFundMe page that my brother made. Um, and so this message of optimism just started spreading and I started putting it on t-shirts and hats and patches and stickers and pins and just getting that word out there because it was so meaningful to me. Uh, it really, made me realize the power of storytelling and sure. the power of, of lettering combined with a powerful message. And I just wanted to keep creating art around that theme after that. And so that ended up leading you to doing murals, right? For WeWork. Is that right? Uh, well, the, the work that I was doing around that time was mostly lettering and I wanted to scale it up onto large scale walls. And I, no one was really hiring me to do murals at the time. So what I would do is I would walk around New York city take photos of walls and then Photoshop my art onto the wall or use uh, whatever tool I want, you know, just make it look like I had a mural and I wouldn't lie to people and say, this is a real mural that you can go visit. I would just put it out there that I want to create murals. And this is what my work would look like as a mural for your business. Awesome. And, and then I would send those around and eventually some of them turned into real murals. They asked, they asked me to come make it happen. So uh, that, that, that was so really smart, dude. That, I mean, it's not really that novel of an idea. I think it was just the fact that I was willing to put myself out there and sure. take a, take a risk and spend some time creating something that might have no return. Um, yeah. And I was doing it because I wanted to see it. I wanted to have fun with it. And I just, I envisioned it in my head. And so it, it was really satisfying just to create them. And obviously the process of painting a large scale mural is way more intensive than doing a Photoshop <laughs> mock-up. So right. uh, I don't want to downplay that at all. That Photoshop sure. is like better or anything. Um, but it was a way for me to present my ideas to the world and say, this is the kind of artist I want to be. So I think that was what really attracted the WeWork opportunity. Um, yeah, yeah. I can tell you more about that, that opportunity because it definitely shaped the practice. Yeah. Let's, let's dig into that. I'm interested in hearing more about it. Sure. So when I was, um, doing these 
Photoshop mock-up murals. Luckily, I had a few under my belt that were real murals. And uh, I, so I, I knew how to paint a little bit. And WeWork approached me saying that they liked my lettering work. Um, it was a random recruiter that reached out on LinkedIn. They were, they were growing really rapidly at the time in 2016. And I, I didn't even want a full-time job at the time. I wanted to freelance. Like I wanted to live that dream I was telling yeah. you about. But when I, when I read the job description, it said uh, hand lettering, it said murals, it said installations, traveling. Uh, I just thought this is the dream job. If I, if I don't do this, I don't know how long it's like, this is a shortcut to get to where I want to be. Cause now I can sure. essentially work with, we work on as many of these projects as I can, cause they were growing so fast. And now I have all of a sudden I have murals around in different cities. So even though I didn't want to commit to the full-time grind again, uh, I just took the risk and said, you know what, this opportunity seems like the right fit for where I want to take my career. So even though I don't want to have a boss right now, I think it's worth it to try this job out, see where it goes. And I'm so glad I did because the company exploded over those years and just many walls to paint, many artworks to be created for these, uh, for these interior spaces. So my role there was first senior designer. And then eventually I was managing a team of designers. Um, That's awesome. And it was on the art and graphics team specifically. So we weren't doing any branding. We weren't doing any apps or websites for WeWork or any of that. It was just the physical artwork in the building, which I loved. Um, yeah. Anything, anything from a mural to a neon sign, a piece of framed art, like even a rug. They were having the graphic designers and artists create rugs and sculptures. Oh, just they really let us go wild with it and create yeah. spaces that people would want to hang out in. So I love that job. And I even got to travel um, and live down in South America working with them for a couple of years. That's amazing, dude. I, I definitely can relate to your freelance approach or, or way of thinking. I've been freelancing for the last 12 years, 10 of those full time. I, you know, I had a full time job for a little bit while I was freelancing there at the start. And then uh, right at 10 years ago, I went freelancing full time and, you know, just kind of took a leap of faith and figured, let's see what happens. I was married, just had my third kid. And uh, <laughs> that was a that was a fun conversation when I made that decision. But, uh, it, you know, it worked out and, and uh, she fully supported me in doing it. At, you know, it was it took some warming up to get get there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been a fun journey for me as well. Not Nothing like what you've been through, but uh, I definitely can relate to that sentiment, though. So let's talk a little bit about um, how the iPad plays a big role in all of this for you, or a role in all of this for you. Uh, let's let's start with you know what your current iPad setup is, what you currently use right now. I have a twelve point nine inch iPad Pro, um, and I also have the slightly smaller version too. And I keep one at home, and I keep one at my studio. And I work with the newer Apple Pencil. Um, and I use Procreate for the most part gotcha. to create my images. And I, sometimes I use Adobe products as well if I can't get what I'm looking for out of Procreate or if I want to work in Vector. So do you have the latest model of the iPad Pro? Do you know? Is it like the 2020 model or the, is it the older one? Do you know which one? I have the latest model. For the awesome. smaller iPad, for the larger iPad, I believe it might be not the most recent generation, but just one prior. Cool. Yeah, that's the one I'm using as well. 12.9 2018 model, which is more than enough for what I do. Um, so kind of walk me through, you know, your history with the iPad. For some people, there's like a slow, gradual build into realizing the iPad is a powerful tool and others, it's an instant attraction and it it clicks right away as soon as they start using it. What was that aha moment like for you? It's a funny story, actually. I had broken <laughs> my leg skateboarding oh, and man. and uh, it was a pretty gnarly injury. I was going to be out, not able to walk for a few months. And I had bought the iPad right around that time, <laughs> just before the injury, because I um, not only because I wanted to just try it out, but it, it makes sense as a as a an artist to be able to draw directly on a screen and see the results on that screen <laughs> versus yeah. versus the Wacom tablet where you have your tablet on the table and then you're looking upward at a screen and your hand and your eye are disconnected. I just like, I couldn't get on board with the Wacom tablets. Um, so I never bought a Wacom. I never uh, kept one. I only have bought one and then, and then sold it. 
um, at some point in my college years, but I, I was just waiting and waiting for Apple to release the iPad. And then I, I got one right around the time that I broke my leg. And so it was perfect for me. I was like cooped up on the couch where I wouldn't be able to have all my art supplies there. So I had my iPad and I had my leg up in the air. So I you know, wasn't in pain. And then <laughs> I, ha- I remember holding my iPad up and having, it says like open for business. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, that was when I started using it. And it was very much uh, a, a pretty fast learning curve on Procreate. I just really threw myself into a side project. And I said, every day in October, I'm going to create a new illustration focused around skateboarding. It was part of like, it was part of a, a challenge called Inktober that is run every year um, around the world with different illustrators. I decided to use an iPad for Inktober, even though most people were using real ink, I was using digital. Sure. Um, yeah. But that really, not, not only did it help me make better work, but I got to explore illustration more. This is when I was still mostly doing lettering. And this was my challenge. Like I'm, I'm going to use the iPad, develop an illustration style. And so how long ago was that? That was October 2017. Okay. So, so almost fa- five years. Fairly ago. recently. Yeah. In the lifespan of the iPad, overall, the cycle of the, the iPad, uh, it's fairly recent, but it's or, uh, a little bit ago, but, you know, it's fairly recent for you. So so then when you went to WeWork and were working on these murals, did the iPad then become part of that? Yes. The, the iPad is a perfect tool for muralists, mainly because you can draw directly on a photo of the wall instead of having to create your design separately and then mock it up on the wall later in Photoshop. Uh, you can draw directly on the photo. Uh, I, I mean, you can do that in Photoshop as well if you have a tablet, sure. but I found that drawing directly on the photo on the iPad versus on the computer was way more natural for me. And it just, I could do it from anywhere. I could bring the iPad to the job site start painting a mural, snap a photo of it, and then keep iterating on it on the iPad without having to actually commit to paint and, and color. I can you know, work on the fly in the process of painting a mural, solving problems halfway through really quickly. And so I think that was the, my favorite part about using the iPad at WeWork was bringing it to the, the job sites and using it to sketch directly on photos of the job site. So is that the normal workflow is to start on the mural, take pictures on your iPad and then iterate? Or was there sketching on paper that was then transferred to the iPad and then, you mm. know, you would mess with it there and then eventually put it on the wall? It's all of the above. I, it really depends on the look that you're going for. And with the creative directors at WeWork, we were encouraged to try to experiment with the style a lot. So one mural would be a landscape mural that was uh, line work. And then another one would be totally different style, maybe brushy textures and paint markers being used. So it was very much just dependent on the project. Sometimes we, I would, actually it was pretty rare that I would get to improvise a mural on the spot, but it did happen a few times. And I think that really helped me build my confidence um, with just showing up to a wall and going for it with a loose creative direction in mind. Uh, yeah. Rather than having every single detail mapped out, which you know both approaches are valid, but one is will take longer than the other. Um, you could say that one is more refined, but I also think sure. that improvised murals, with the assistance of the iPad or not, um, improvised murals on the spot, they have a lot of life in them because it, you can almost see the story a little bit of how the mural was created. Yeah, makes that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so let's let's talk about your workflow, your daily workflow. And I want to dive into the Tops 2020 and the Project 70 stuff you've been doing with baseball cards, which, like I said earlier at the beginning, I spent a lot of time on your site and I ended up on the top site just looking at all the different cards, not only that you created, but that other artists had created as well. So I guess, why don't you uh, summarize what those projects are and then let's walk through your workflow for creating a card. Sure. The, uh, that's great that you mentioned that you were on my site looking at the tops cards. I'm actually working on redesigning that so that it's a really w- cool way to interact with the whole ser- series and all the cards I've created, um, showing like how many exist out there uh, in, in print, et cetera. So hopefully when this episode comes out, that'll be finished. Um, awesome. In terms of my workflow and my process, or you want me to tell you a little bit about the project in general first? 
Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay, so last year in March, Tops, the collectibles card company, reached out to me and 19 other artists. Well, they reached out to us before March, but March kicked off this project last year called Project 2020. And what they did was they gave us each 20 subjects, uh, basically a card from their archive, 20 cards from their archive that we would remix in our own style. And so each artist had the same 20 cards. And then all together, it was a 400 card set that was released over the course of the year, two cards every day uh, that were available for a limited time. They were printed on demand based on how many orders were accepted during that short window of time. And then they're never printed again. So it was a cool limited edition product collaboration with 20 different artists and really disrupted the sports card market, I think. People were not expecting these types of cards to exist in, you know, in that world. It's, it's not really, they're not exposed to street art and right. all the different kinds of styles that we got in the, the, the project last year. Um, and I think Tops did a great job curating a mix of different styles and not just, and they also uh, hired non-visual non artists. They hired jewelry designers and sneaker designers and you know what what is their interpretation of a baseball card look like so yeah. it, was, it was really fun it was something for everybody and now we just kicked off another project uh, another 20 cards that we're working on this year and it's called project 70 that's underway currently and that's a little different because i'm picking my own players and creating my own vision for my set so there's a lot more variety and a lot more sure. artists involved as well but i can tell you a little about, about my process for designing one of these cards That'd be awesome. And I'm uh, I'm switching it up a little bit this year. So I'll tell you what I did last year and then I'll tell you what I'm working on right now. So last year, I, I didn't really have much experience in the in designing baseball cards. I mean, I used to collect when I was a kid, but I didn't know how to design one for the format really that well. It's a specific size and not all the details or textures or even colors will uh, will show up as I imagined them on a small trading card. So it's, I had to sort of realize the limitations over the course of last year and then find my sweet spot of my, my approach. By the end of the series, my approach was this. It was start out with the card, clip out the player image onto a new layer, and then I would illustrate a background and I would illustrate the player in the foreground separately um, on Procreate. And I would do a lot of research beforehand to find out what What's unique about this player? Um, what's unique about this card or this team or this stadium, city, whatever context I could find around the moment that was captured on the card. And then the story starts building in my head of what, what, what parts of this player's story or this card's story stand out to me as something I can either play up or play down or juxtapose with something fresh. So there's a lot of conceptual thinking that goes into those early stages of just researching about the player because I'm, I'm not a baseball expert. Um, right. But then I, yeah, I do the background and the foreground separately. I, I had a repeating motif of border uh, elements last year where there's like a dotted line border on every card to keep it consistent. And sometimes I would hide little Easter eggs in the border that continued the story of the player, but they weren't necessarily noticeable right away. And so that was what I was really going for was this discoverability and second read where you want to keep coming back to the card to notice more of the fine details. Um, and then tying it all together at the end, there's a, a definitely a heavy refinement stage where I'm just getting all the balance right and cleaning up any little uh, things that seem off because I'm a bit of a perfectionist sometimes. Um, but that's the, that's the main process. And then I would send it off to tops directly. I would, I would actually export it from my iPad fix it up in Photoshop, um, just making sure that it's the correct size file with the bleed and everything. And then I send it off to my client and um, they would have to run it by the MLB, make sure that I'm not distorting any of the branding elements of the teams um, of using course. even like they're very, it's very specific because since these are vintage cards, the logos have changed over time. These, right. these, and I, I love baseball team logos. I don't know about you, but they're so classic. Yeah, they're, no, yeah. they are. They are. And, but they wanted it to be accurate to the time period. So I, I couldn't choose my favorite uh, Cardinals logo. I had to choose the Cardinals logo that was accurate to the time. So oh, 
Yeah. And, and there's other little things like that. Like I'm not, for some of the mascots, I'm not allowed to work those in. So there's some limitations that I have, but other than that, it's, it's pure creative freedom other, other than the branding elements that need to be run by MLB. And I love that tops just lets these artists run wild with which what's, what seemed like really culturally important uh, and iconic uh, symbols, these cards, right. And they're just letting artists run free with them. It's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I think I saw you did Jackie Robinson. That was one of the cards. Yes. Yes. That was over the summer last year. That's a, that's, that's a huge card, like very, very meaningful person to, you know, have the honor of doing that with, which I thought was, was great. So then I also saw you did Ichiro. You did him on a skateboard. Does he skateboard? Is that something I don't know about him? Ichiro does not skateboard, but every, (laughs) every photo that I saw of Ichiro running, it looked like he had the perfect skateboarding form, yeah. <laughs> like pushing. Yeah, when you, so. when you, I, I watched the video of you working on it. And as you were putting, when the skateboard finally ended up under his foot, I was just like, oh my God, it looks like he's truly skateboarding. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep working in more of random details that also don't have anything to do with the player. It's just my okay. personal touches. Uh, and yeah. I think, I think that it's, it's a good to have both because if you're only focused on pleasing the card collectors, then that's obviously not the best approach as an artist. You got to please yourself too. It's like one for me, one for them kind of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. So how does, how has your workflow changed to this year then? Uh, If that was last year, how you approached it, how are you approaching it on your iPad this year? This year I am getting to not only choose the players, but I'm getting to choose the images of the players. So I just go on Getty and find the tops has a deal with Getty. So I can choose whichever images are available on there and I can combine them. I can remix them. I can re illustrate them. And I am going much more of a fully illustrated approach this year. Last year on most of my cards, I, what I would did was I kept the player photograph intact and I illustrated the background and maybe retraced some of the elements like the hat or the added some accessories on their uniform. But this year I'm fully illustrating the player from scratch, which is something I don't normally do. Like I don't do portraits that much. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I, last year I just let the photography stay mostly intact, but I did try a few cards last year that were re-illustrated. It was just my way of experimenting with a portrait style for my next uh, project. So this one, I'm definitely not going to use any photography um, mainly just cause I want to be putting my work out there as paintings, as drawings and not, uh, collage or digital pho- photography collage. Also, I didn't take the photograph, obviously. Right. So, so I can't, I, I think it's just more original to, to reinterpret it completely. Um, yeah. So that's my approach this year. And I'm not really so focused. It's a little more fluid. I'm not so focused on telling every element of the player's story as much. I just want to have a really fun concept for each card that feels fresh and unique. And if it, if it works out that it's the kind of card that I can pack with little Easter eggs, uh, then I'll do that. But for example, my second card doesn't have that many Easter eggs in it. I just really like the overall concept of it. Uh, sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure when this podcast is supposed to come out, but I give a little teaser of that next card. Go ahead. It, this one should come out a March 16th. Okay. So my second card will have already been sold out by that time. So I can tell you about my second and my third card. I think my third card will be available shortly after this episode comes out. So my second card is Ozzy Smith from the Cardinals. Nice, and yeah. he was known for running out onto the field and doing a backflip on his way to the outfield. Yeah. And uh, I just love that, that quirky element of like, who, what? Like, is he a entertainer? Like, I guess yeah, this so. This is baseball. What are you doing? <laughs> right. Yeah. This isn't gymnastics, but he had fun and that's what I'm all about too. So I wanted to illustrate him doing a backflip. It just takes up the entire card. It's just a giant upside down figure drawing with like spirals and flames and in patterns awesome. like com- coming around. And so the idea is, and also the typography exists on both the bottom of the card and the top of the card uh, upside down. So it could be like enjoyed upside down or right side up. Yeah, there's no wrong way of viewing it, like a playing card. Before you tell us about the third card in the series, though, I want to take a quick break to hear more from this episode's sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by Kensington, maker of the innovative, award-winning Studio Dock for iPad. 
If you want to truly get the most from your USB-C based iPad Pro or iPad Air, then Studio Dock is for you. It's a beautifully designed docking station that your iPad magnetically attaches to. You can use it in portrait or landscape mode, and it charges your entire Apple ecosystem, including Qi wireless devices. It's got tons of expansion ports, and it comes with a three-year warranty. Expand your creativity with Studio Dock. Check it out at kensington.com, along with their other Apple accessories, including rugged cases, locks, and privacy screens. All right, now let's hear more about the third card in your series. My third card is a big player who's still playing, actually. That was the cool thing about this year is we can choose players that are still in the league. So that means the, the meaning of these cards will continue to develop over the course of their career um, versus last year where we mostly illustrated on cards of, of players that are, no, that are retired. Um, this year I have for my third card, Ronald Acuna Jr., who is on the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. He's a very, very young player, but very uh, hot rookie star right now. Um, and for this card, I definitely took more of an experimental approach of um, of illustrating the player. He has like three bats instead of one, <laughs> and it's trying to show the motion. And the background of this card has a stained glass kind of mosaic vibe. And I, I've been doing that on a few of my cards. Uh, I could share my inspiration for that. My grandmother was a stained glass artist, actually. Wow. So she used to make those things by hand, and I always admired her her craft. So I honor her by uh, continuing that stained glass tradition through my graphics and my cards. That's a nice little um, touch. So that's on that card. Not much to do with Ronald Acuna Jr. Um, <laughs> no, but it doesn't but have to be. It, it, but the colors of the stained glass represent his roots in Venezuela. So that's uh, one, one way I'm tying in my personal experiences with the player's story. That's awesome, man. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so let's, let's talk a bit. Of, we already touched on it some, but your workflow when it comes to doing other art projects, whether it's a mural or anything else, is, is that all still just in procreate? Like, do you ever go outside of that? Like you had mentioned Adobe earlier and vector. Um, but you know, where do you, where do you fall for those other projects with uh, how you're using your iPad? For which other projects specifically, or just any for, other project? Yeah, yeah, any other projects outside of the cards, whether it's murals or, or um, I, I, I saw some soft goods on your site, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, you know, how does it play a role in that? It, just like anything, the iPad's a tool that you can have on your tool belt. I mean, that would be a pretty clumsy looking tool belt if you had an iPad mounted <laughs> to it. But yeah. you know, yeah. the, you get the you get the metaphor, and I think the that I just pick it up whenever I feel like it'll be most efficient to use it. Um, if I'm creating something for an email newsletter about a project, the fastest way to draw it is on my iPad. Usually I just go straight to there. Um, for, so for marketing materials, I use it a lot just to tell stories around what I'm doing and little mini projects, um, in terms of like, I actually love working on paper too. So sure. I, I sometimes will photograph a drawing on paper and then I'll touch it up on the iPad if I made a mistake or if I want to test out what it would look like, just like I was saying with making murals on the fly, you can do that with, with drawings and paintings and just sort of like use the, the iPad as a way to experiment with color without having to spend the money on paint. And then you can commit to it with paint after you feel confident. Um, so I just pick it up whenever I feel like it's useful and it ha it's pretty, it's definitely every day for at least a little time. Uh, it feels weird if I don't draw, uh, on my iPad once a day. It was kind of funny. <laughs> that is. So you do stay just pretty much in Procreate then? You don't bounce out into anything else? I'm trying to think. Uh, I'd say it's 90% Procreate and 10% Adobe Sketch slash Fresco. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I had Ross Piper. He's a, another artist. He was the, on the first episode of Work Beyond Mac, and he spent a lot of time in Fresco doing different drawings and different things. He really loved it for uh, vector-based stuff, um, which I thought was interesting. In Procreate, I've messed around with it myself, but for me, I'm not an artist. Like I write. That's what I do for a living, and um, that so Procreate to me is just way intimidating. It seems too powerful for what I could possibly do with it. But obviously, you know, there's there's uh, people who know how to take advantage of it, like yourself. Um, let's 
let's kind of get sidetracked here a little bit because I want to I want to hear what you think about NFTs and this new fad that's taken over um, and selling, allowing people to mint NFTs and sell sell products directly to consumers. Uh, what do you know about it? Is it a fad though? I don't know. Um, <laughs> is it the future? <laughs> right, yeah. Who knows? Uh, yeah. What yeah. do I know about it? Well, I'm not the right person to give you the NFT 101. Because uh, I am learning about this more every day, and I, ha- I also haven't yet minted my first NFT. As we're speaking, uh, I have plans to try it out very soon. So when this episode comes out, most likely I'll have some NFTs out there in the world. Um, but basically, what I understand is it's it's quite similar to the physical art world, uh, where you're trading or selling a piece of of media, whether that's a visual piece of art and now it can be digital so videos animations music any uh, even writing uh images of anything images that you own basically any any intellectual property that you create can now be minted as a token used as currency online what a world we live in it's on the ethereum blockchain i think that's what you have to use when you place a bid because people can bid on your nft right so if you put up yes something people would bid on it and when the auction closes, that person now owns that NFT from the way I understand it. And then if they decide to turn around and sell it, the original artist still gets royalties, you know, a kickback on that sale. It's not like selling, you know, a painting now and then someone decides to resell it and the artist never sees any proceeds from that. You're still going to make money off of the subsequent sales from, from the way I understand. I, I have a very loose understanding of it, but... Um, I was reading about that a couple days ago, that there, there's some royalties that get kicked back. I mean, that has to solve a pretty huge problem for artists like yourself, you know, as far as um, not getting to realize that income on second or third sales of, of uh, products. Yeah. And with the trading cards, there's a lot of resale that happens on my cards. Um, not just the tops cards, but I've also been doing my own edition of cards that I get printed on the side. They're, I call them companion cards. Um, okay. They go along with the tops cards. They're inspired by the tops cards, but they're printed by me and they don't have any MLB property on them. It's just an artwork uh, inspired by the card. And so if I could sell my cards digitally and the collectors wanted those, I have been you know, thinking about doing that. And, and that way, if they ever get resold, because I see my stuff on eBay all the time, <laughs> like people send it to me. They're like, you know, your cards are being <laughs> sold on eBay. I'm like, yeah, I know that's the, that's the market. Um, yeah. I don't mind it. It's cool that people can profit off of the work that I'm doing. And it, I think that it brings more people to my, um, to my page if they see that it's on eBay. So whatever. Sure. Uh, yeah. but, the, but, but the NFT thing where I could continue to see a percentage of that sale over time, like that would be amazing. I just don't know how quickly the card world is going to adopt this. I don't not, I'm not sure if my card designs or any anything baseball related really belongs in my first edition of NFTs. I've been thinking more about it using it for abstract art and just trying to give people a feeling through a piece of digital art, uh, much like I do with my abstract drawings on paper, but just never printing it, never 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 doing it physically, you know, only doing it digitally or perhaps just minting an NFT that is a counterpart to a physical piece. Like I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in my studio looking at the wall and there's a drawing that I'm finishing up and I'm getting ready to sell it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, should I just mint an NFT of this? And do I send, (laughs) is is the person who buys it even going to want the physical drawing? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Is is the physical thing like not really in the cards? I don't know. The thing that I'm seeing is, and the reason that most artists are jumping on the bandwagon is not only the royalties thing, but just the prices that things are being sold for seem to be higher for younger. Yeah. For younger artists, um, even artists who have never really sold physical work or prints of their work are, are selling their work for hundreds or thousands of dollars and they're going directly to the consumer. There's no middleman, no gallery. It's just very decentralized. Um, as the blockchain is. So I'm really fascinated by it. I, the thing that I don't like is it seems like a lot of people are just coming, they, they're coming in, they come in seeing dollar signs and yeah. they don't consider that this piece is going to be out there forever and that this is their brand. So sure. people, people can see that and pass it around and then trade it around just like with my physical cards, except now anybody can see what and everything is worth. 
too publicly. I think the transparency yeah, it's, it, it's good for the art world, uh, in my opinion, because previously the physical art world was so uh, behind closed doors and it didn't really allow for much, many younger artists to, to break in. And I even understand how it works, right? Like va valuing artwork and, and reselling it. Like there's no, there's not much information on that, uh, on that, that is shared uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe some books yeah, about it out there. On the inside or, or you're on the outside. There, there yeah. Was no... and so you bet I've been, I've been tuning in on clubhouse and just like learning from people because they're, they're sharing information now. Um, yeah. But I'm, but I'm also not rushing it. Like I, 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 I felt the FOMO and I've been trying to <laughs> resist the FOMO because sure. there is no rush. We're still super early in this. Even when this episode comes out or a year from now, it's still going to be super early in this. I, I heard a figure that was interesting. It was like, these are, these are approximate numbers, but the, the amount of uh, art that's been sold through NFTs was around $30 million so far. And then the, the overall art world is uh, in the billions. It's like 4 billion um each each year so we're, we're very early in this now and i think that any anybody and everybody should look into it and and research it there's obviously some downsides to it that i haven't talked about such as the environmental issue with using all the energy but right. there's a lot of mixed uh information around that everybody has a different opinion and i'm not i'm not a sustainability expert so i don't want to speak too much to it yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting thing. I, like like I said earlier, I, I've been paying attention to it. I think there was like a Grimes video that was under a minute long that sold for, uh, it was almost $400,000, <laughs> which is just insane for, for something like that. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it ends up playing out. And like you said, it's a small piece of the pie right now, but it, it's it's catching on. There's, there's a lot, a lot of noise around it right now. But let's get back to talking about iPad and workflow and, uh, you know, the whole topic of this show. <laughs> well, one more thing, actually, I, I, I want to say one, one last thing on that is it, when we see these headlines about Grimes making $400,000 or Blau, uh, who recently sold an album for millions of dollars, like it's, temp it's, it's intimidating because it feels like, well, if they can make all that money, then, then why can't anybody make all that money? But sure. the thing is, it's it's not an overnight success. These people have massive audiences already, and they've been building and built and and growing for years and years. So I think that it's much like the physical art world, um, where it helps to have a large audience. Uh, and I think that you can still have great success with a small audience. But looking at these numbers, it's like it's going to be a scaled down version for whatever moment you're at in your career, based on however much effort you put in thus far. It's not going to be like you put up your first artwork and it, and it gets sold for so many thousands of dollars. And I'm trying to remember that, that it's okay if my first NFT is small, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. It doesn't have to be like this huge thing that um, is on an article headline. Like it can just be me coming into a new medium and, and trying it out and just being open to what happens. So that's kind of the mindset that I'm trying to keep these days. Yeah, I think it's a good mindset to have. This is, it, it kind of feels experimental uh, to some degree and it's good for artists like yourself to experiment with it as well and see and see what happens with it. Um, yeah. So, all right, we'll get back on topic now. Um, <laughs> outside of art, which we've covered pretty extensively to this point for you uh, and using the iPad, do you do anything else on it? Is, is there any, whether it's fun or work, you know, is there, what other aspects does it play a role in your life? Uh, I do my research on the iPad so I can pull images, bring them into Procreate for reference. Um, so that's part of the art process. But other than that, I sometimes use it for note taking during meetings. Um, I use the notes app built in or I'll just write the notes in Procreate. Yeah. Um, sketch and Procreate while I'm on the phone. So it's sort of like art, but it's note taking. And then <laughs> uh, what else? I'll use the alarm clock. Not really much else. Safari and, and Procreate and those Adobe apps. That's about it. Um, so if, I, if, if my computer is dead, I'll use, I'll use it for Netflix. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, which it makes a good Netflix device for sure. So then most of your computing tasks that are done on your Mac or your PC, whichever you have. Yep. MacBook Pro. Okay, cool. Do you have one of the new Apple Silicon ones or is it an older one? It is one of the older ones. I have not. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. The Silicon ones are the super flat ones, right? 
Yeah, they're the ones that just launched uh, at the end of last year. Apple's processor. It's the same that's actually in in your iPad, just a lot faster, a lot better battery life. I mean, I have the new uh, M1 MacBook Pro, and it has like 18 hours of battery life on a single charge, which is just ridiculous for any laptop, period. But, uh, you know, it's it's quite a bit. Um, Cool. So are... Are there any other accessories besides the Apple Pencil that you use then? I, I noticed at one point you have had a cover on the Apple Pencil. Is that something you use to keep paint from getting on it, or was it just a better grip? Uh, that was just a better grip, a little softer on the hand, because I do, like, in order to get the textures that I want to use, I sometimes have to grip the pencil really tightly and hold the hold the angle of the pencil really low to the screen, almost like I'm shading with the side of the pencil. And yeah. I just, it's just uncomfortable after a while. So the grip kind of helped me soften that up. And then I do have a cover for the iPad for both of my iPads. Um, it's uh, an Apple cover that uh, one of them has a keyboard. I really like the keyboard, the new one. Um, although I haven't yeah, used the- it, I haven't used it a ton. Just, just for when I'm taking notes, I'll have that up. Yeah, the Magic Keyboard is, uh, man, it, it really changed everything for a lot of people and how they use the iPad, it, you know, with the trackpad support and all of that. It, it's a solid keyboard. So looking forward, you know, there's rumors that as soon as this month, Apple's going to announce uh, a new iPad Pro or new iPad Pros of different sizes. What changes hardware-wise would you want to see in a new iPad Pro? What ranges hardware size, like the screen size? No, what changes would you what want changes? to see uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. inside the iPad? Uh, yeah, like would you want yeah. a bigger screen, more I ports? Think that they, I think it would be really cool to see Apple's version of the Cintiq uh, or just a massive iPad um, yeah. or essentially taking an iMac and making it into a touch screen that you can sketch on. Surface Pro, you know, whatever equivalent from Apple um, I, that they've been working on behind the scenes because I'm sure they have been of a massive drawing tablet because it's other brands have done it. And Apple has just like Apple was one of the last to create a tablet that you can draw on. Cause I'm, of course Apple needs to get it right <laughs> before they release something. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, I want to see what they're doing with, with large scale screens and drawing. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a common sentiment among people who work on the iPad primarily is uh, the screen definitely needs to grow. We have 15, 16 inch MacBook Pros. Why can't we have a 15 or 16 inch iPad? Uh, and that's just people who work on it, you know, and, and spend their, their day in apps and writing and bouncing between apps. But the versatility and the usability of it from an art standpoint has to be tremendous to have that bigger display to move around in and see what you're doing. Yeah. And also, how many movies have we seen uh, or, or Black Mirror episodes? have we seen where there's like this futuristic device that looks like it could have been made by Apple and it does exactly what we're talking about. So I think it's, it only looks like it's made by Apple because it's, it's like beautifully minimally designed, but I want to see what that looks like actually with Apple's seal of approval on it and, and test it out. Um, I tried the surface pro. I didn't love it. Honestly, I I think I'm, I'm definitely an Apple fanboy and loyalist (laughs) for, for most products. Um, So I didn't even really consider buying it, but I, yeah, I mean, hopefully that'll come out with this app, with this release, but I have a feeling that they're probably not ready yet. Cause it is a, I mean, maybe they'll do the 15 inch, but what I'm talking about more is like, the, like a freaking 27 inch iPad, you know, sure. I want to no, see I, like I the massive you. thing that you can even rotate from, from vertical to table, like on a stand somehow, you know? Microsoft has one of those. It's a Surface something. I, I forget what it is. I don't follow it too closely. Surface Studio. Have, Surface yeah, Studio. Studio. That's what it is. Yeah. And so you want a Surface Studio version of the iPad, which I think would be tremendous like that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be limited, right? Not a ton of people are going to go out and buy that because it's kind of niche in a way. But at the same time, if Apple really pushes it and does it right, like you said, take their time and do it right, there may be a huge market for it. Who knows? It would be a lot of fun to see what it looked like at, at a minimum. I think the iMacs are, are similar in that they're for a, a niche audience. A lot of creative agencies will buy uh, several iMacs uh, to have just as stations in their studio. These days, it's obviously a lot of people working from home, so probably not yeah. as many iMacs being sold. But uh, I think that it's that there actually is a larger audience than you think that would be interested because I'm sure that a, 
if, if Apple did make a large, like 24, 27 inch iPad, I think that the artist community would really try it out, especially like the prosumers, the ones that are sure. working professionally, that they have enough uh, money to just like buy this product, try it out, see if it's better workflow. You know, I think that a lot of people are looking forward to it um, enough where it would be worth Apple creating it, you know? Yeah. And I'd love to see them create it uh, myself. It, it would probably be something I would buy and work on just like I do with my iPad now, to be honest with you, even though it's not in our setting. Um, before we close out here, Eric, why don't you tell everyone where they could find you, whether it's on socials, website, find your tops cards, uh, give us a rundown. Sure. So my Instagram, which is the main platform I'm on is F dot that's E F D O T. Uh, my website is f.studio.com and my Twitter is f.studio. Um, those are my main platforms where you can find me. I'm also on Patreon. If you're interested in the baseball cards specifically, I have a $5 Patreon setup where you can really participate in my process of creating the cards. I also do a bunch of giveaways there. So if you're a baseball card nerd or you want to see more about that process, check out patreon.com slash f.studio. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me about your workflow and just about everything in general. Like I've said about a hundred times during this episode, I've checked out a lot of your work online and seriously, it's, it's amazing. Like I wish I had some of that talent, just to be able to paint a wall in my house with, with some of the stuff I've seen you do. Uh, it looks fantastic, man. Thank you so much, man. I'm, I'm stoked to see where it goes this year. Yeah. Best of luck to you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Talk soon. As I said at the beginning of the show, I hope you enjoyed that talk as much as I did. Eric is a very talented person who does some amazing things with his iPad. Make sure to check out his website to see more of his work. Those baseball cards are truly stunning. If you have any feedback, know someone who would make for a great guest on the show, or just want to talk all things iPad, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Mr. Sippy, M-R-C-I-P-P-Y. You can find the show on Twitter at WorkBeyondMac and follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If it's not listed in the one you use, please reach out to me and I'll see what I can do. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get to work.